If there's one thing abundantly clear in the New Testament about the Christian life, it is that Jesus wants to be everything in your life. He does not want to be, nor will he be content to be, a spoke in your wheel. That is, where you are the center hub and all of life revolves around you. Jesus will not fit into the American dream very easily. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For life and liberty are promised in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. And as you pursue him, the byproduct of that is incredible joy. But that joy is a byproduct of a relationship with him. He wants everything. And one thing we notice as Christians, the more we learn, the more we grow, our growth is demonstrated by the fact that he reveals areas of our life that need change constantly. If we ever reach a plateau where growth doesn't occur... We're dead ducks in the water. Growth should be taking place constantly. And every time we find some area that is either unpleasing to the Lord or that we have neglected or that the Holy Spirit is touching with his gracious but firm finger, it's a time to bring that before the Lord and change so that every area of our life gradually is surrendered totally to him. That's our goal. Sanctification, to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we have... Many examples of that in the scripture, some that failed at it and some that succeeded at it. And Paul was one that succeeded at it. He was a Pharisee turned evangelist. He was a persecutor turned preacher. And he was a mighty preacher and he was very zealous. And we've already seen in the last several chapters that that zeal has gotten him into trouble. And that he persevered, as we saw last week for the name of Jesus Christ. And he didn't really care that it would cost him his entire life. When he was facing the elders at Ephesus, and they were saying, Paul, don't go. He said, look it, the Holy Spirit tells me that wherever I go, bonds and afflictions await me, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry that has been laid out for me. And so we have a man of great perseverance and great zeal. And he was always up front with his zeal. He never concealed it. He never beat around the bush to get next door when he shared. Did you ever notice that about Paul? That he said what he meant. He meant what he said. He did it tactfully, yes, but he did it definitely. And it did get him into trouble, but he was always up front. He didn't try to conform his message to make it more palatable to a certain group so that they wouldn't be offended. I'm not saying that's bad, but sometimes we can think we're too offensive, that we compromise the essential truths of the gospel. We water them down so that they become ineffective, so that they'll become palatable to people. Paul was up front. I remember a few years ago, I... I'm the kind of person who just likes it straight. If you want to sell me something, tell me what you want to sell, tell me the benefits of the product, and I'll be able to judge for myself because I feel like I do have a brain that is operational, and I can look at the ingredients, and I can look at the price, and I can make my own choices. And I was working out when I first moved to town here at a spa down by where I work, doing laps every day at lunch. Guy approached me, he was a brother, and we did grow in our relationship and fellowship during those hours, but he said, 
I'd like to invite you to my house next Wednesday night. I have something very special to share with you. So what is it? Tell me what it is. I want to know if I, you know, if I should come. So I can't. It's really, but it, hey, it's really neat. And it's just something that it's on my wife and my heart and we want to do and we want to share it with you. Okay, great. He wouldn't let on though. So I came over to his house the next week and there were other people who were nicely dressed and invited and sitting in chairs that had been designated for them by the host, different things around the room. There was a chalkboard up. I didn't know what I was in for. For the first hour, they talked about how their lives had changed, and I thought, this is really going to be good. Well, I think you, if you've been in my shoes, you know where this is at. It's Amway. Now, the products are great. They really are good. But I don't like the approach. Just tell me the product first. Let me make up my own mind. Don't cajole me unwittingly to your home and then spring it on me so I'm in a corner. Paul was did not have that approach with the gospel. He was very upfront. He stood before several councils. He stood before the crowds in Jerusalem, gave it to him straight. Before the Sanhedrin, gave it to him straight. He stood before the procurator, the governor, the Jewish people, gave it to them straight. Tactful, but very zealous. Now in chapter 24... He's in Caesarea. He's left Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea. Now, I have told you before, if I was going to be in prison anywhere, and I had my choice, where it would be? It'd be Caesarea. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. The surf is great. The weather is wonderful. And Paul was there for two years under house arrest. That means he wasn't confined in chains. He was a Roman citizen. They gave him lots of freedom. And he stays there for two years on his way from Jerusalem to Rome. You know, Paul was caught between two powers. On one side, you had the power of Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, with all of its thousands of years of traditions and history from the time of Abraham, the law, the temple, the Jewish ruling elders, the scriptures. Jerusalem was the center. And then on the other hand, you had Rome and all of the laws of Rome. And Rome had three million square miles of land etched out around the Mediterranean Sea. And it would seem as if both of those powers are poised against Paul. And it's sort of like a butterfly confronting a steamroller. I mean, these two powers are about ready to crush him. And Paul's accusers are accusing him of bucking both systems, spiritual system, And the system of Rome itself. And so Paul is caught in the grips of the accusations from the Jews and from the Romans. It would be enough to overwhelm most people. But Paul knew that truth is its own best defense. And it really, as you look at his defenses in court in the next several chapters, he doesn't really go out of his way to defend himself. He just states what the truth is. Very simply, very confidently. So much so that it causes Felix in this chapter to quake a little bit, to shake. You know, uh, my mentor and friend Chuck Smith says, if you want to defend yourself, God will let you. But if there's an accusation against you that's not true, why bother? Now these accusations were untrue and 
Paul did have to bring defense before him, but it's not like he's trying to muster up force behind him. It's just, hey, this is not true. These accusations aren't true, basically. And they can't prove it. And he basically turned it over to God. Also, the accusations that we read last week and that we read tonight are not true. Paul was not trying to come down on Judaism. He wasn't trying to change Judaism into a new thing. He was simply saying, I believe what I've always believed. I believe what these Jewish people believe. I believe in the fulfillment of them, and I believe Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of them. Neither was Paul trying to break the laws of Rome, as his accusers said he was. In fact, I want you to read some of uh, his writings to the Romans. Look over to Romans chapter 10 for just, uh, Romans 13 for just a moment. Now he's writing to the people, the Christians in Rome, the center of the empire. And listen to his own epistle in chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. He's not fighting the government. He's saying we ought to obey the government. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I know that was tough to swallow. It's tough for many people today to believe it. Think of back then when Caesar Nero was in charge. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword, which literally translated as the sword of capital punishment or execution in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. It's good for us to remind ourselves of that this time of the year. Because you you often wonder, could this be in the will of God? That I'm paying this kind of tax? Well, of course it is. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and God the things that belong to God. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And of course we know they do attend continually to it. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Does that sound like an insurrectionist? Does that sound like somebody who's trying to overthrow the Roman, Roman government contrary to Roman law? No. Now, there is an exception to this. And the exception is when the law overtly violates spiritual law, i.e., if the law ever is passed that says you cannot openly preach the gospel, you can't evangelize, you can't uh, read your Bibles, well, then you are called upon to disobey that law. We already read in the book of Acts where Peter and the apostles were given a commandment. Don't preach anymore in Jerusalem. It's now a law. They said, well, you have to decide what the law is, but we have to obey God rather than men. Now, there was a law in China for years, still is. You can't bring Bibles in from the outside. We don't care. We still bring them in. Oh, but you're breaking the law. You bet you we're breaking the law. We must obey God rather than men. Especially as we realize the power of the Word of God to change lives. And back in the 70s and early 80s, when we were able to deliver a million Bibles into China. And that really did change people's lives. 
And so there are exceptions to that. But the point is, Paul never said anything against the Roman government, as his accuser said. And also, the Jewish people had no right to claim that Paul was a spiritual insurrectionist. Look back a couple chapters in Romans chapter 9. Notice what he says concerning the Jews and Israel. In verse 4, he speaks about the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, the Messiah came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He was not an insurrectionist. They had not a leg to stand on. Now, we're going to look at chapter 24 tonight, and let's begin in verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders, and a certain orator, or as some of your translations say, a lawyer, uh-oh, named Tertullius, or Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, to Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity. In being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague. This is against Paul. The prosecution says we found this man a plague, a creator of dissension, among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Now, that's an out-and-out lie. But remember, this guy's a lawyer. He's trying to have a great prosecution here. He's hired. The Jews in Jerusalem hired him. And if you ever think talk is cheap, hire a lawyer. You'll see that it's not. And he was paid to do his job. And he says, here we were, and this Roman governor snatched him out from our hands violently. That's not the truth. It was the Jews who were trying to kill Paul, and a Roman saved him from their claws. Commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented. They were over in the corner going, that's right, we saw it. Maintaining that these things were so. Now he begins by buttering up Felix, which was a custom in the courtrooms of that day to do. It was called the capatio benevolentiae. In other words, I will try to win the judge's favor. I'll say nice things to make him feel really good. And as was often the custom, they would butter up the judge so much to the point almost of absurdity and hypocrisy. And this was the case. Uh, He begins by saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace. That is the farthest thing from the truth. Felix was known as a violent man, and the Jews were scared of him. He would quell an insurrection by violence. And people hated his guts. But he says, oh, you're so wonderful and we enjoy peace and prosperity. We accept it always and in all places. Most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, under his breath, he's going, you wasn't the truth. Now, he brings accusations against him. First of all, he says, this man is a plague. 
or as the New English Bible says, a perfect pest. And he goes on to say, a creator of the dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. In other words, this man is a political insurrection. He's trying to overturn by his factions the Roman government in all places that he goes. Secondly, he says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, meaning he's, he's a cult leader, which is, I mean, imagine, Paul was once a killer of Christians, and now he's being accused as being a cult leader. It's almost uh, hilarious. And then in the next verse, it says he even tried to profane the temple. This is the third accusation. He tried to profane the temple, and we seized him. Now, what are they referring to? Well, remember back a couple chapters, chapter 21. Paul is there. He's offering a vow. He's brought peace offerings to his people in Jerusalem, and he's worshiping God in the temple. And the Jews from Asia thought that they had brought an Ephesian named Trophimus into the temple, and so they accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the holy court of God, which wasn't the truth. But here they're bringing up this accusation. And uh, verses 10 through 13 is Paul's defense. It's time for him to speak. He doesn't have a lawyer. And Paul, after the governor, nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's answering the first charge, that he was a plague or a pest, a political um, reformer. He said, look, it's only been 12 days. That's not even enough time to gather an army or a group to come up with a conspiracy. Check the records. I've only been here 12 days. You can attest to that fact. So he answers the first charge. And he says in verse 12, And they neither found in me, or they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone or inciting a crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way... Isn't that a great name for following Jesus? And I like it. It was so non-sectarian in those days. He didn't say, now according to the Baptist or the Presbyterian or the Methodist or the Calvary Chapel, it's just this, uh, the way, according to the way which they call a sect. It's because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And actually in Greek, it's I in contradistinction to everyone else. And the only way, the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so it became sort of a common phrase of the church in that day. I belong to the way, Jesus Christ, and I'm following him, which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, he makes an affirmation. He's answering the second charge now. They say, I'm a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, let let me tell you something. I follow the way, but it is not contrary to the Jewish way. And he's making affirmations that he is as Jewish as they are. And first of all, he says, I worship the God of my fathers. I worship the same God these Jews worship. I don't worship any God that's different. Christianity doesn't have a different God from the God of the Jews. It's the same God, the God of my fathers, the one I've been raised to believe. And the same scriptures, notice next. 
believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. The same truth that they believe, I believe. And the same hope they have, I hope. Verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. He's showing I'm as mainstream Jew as you can get. I didn't change anything. These accusations are false. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Now, he's answering the charge that he was there to disrupt and profane the temple. He's saying, listen, I was in the temple worshiping God, and the whole reason I came to Jerusalem was not to profane the temple. I came all the way from Macedonia and Asia to bring an offering for the poor people. That's the whole reason he came to Jerusalem. He made a collection. All the churches in Greece and Macedonia, and he brought them to the poor in Jerusalem. And it was at the request of the leaders in the church that he take this vow and go into the temple, and he was worshiping God the God that the Jewish people loved. And it was the Asian Jews that made the riot, not Paul. And so in verse 18, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified. I wasn't defiling or profaning anything. I was ceremonially clean in the temple. Neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they have had anything against me. Or else, let those who are here themselves say, if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, back up a little bit. Remember when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin and... uh, the high priest is there, and they have all these accusations, the same ones. And uh, Paul knew that half of them were Pharisees and half of them were Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in miracles. The Pharisees believed in the literal resurrection from the dead. They believed in spirits. They believed in angels. The Sadducees were the liberals. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in physical resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. There was already an innate division between the group of elders. And Paul knew that. And so he said, you know what? I want to tell you guys something. That I believe in the resurrection of the dead, which was taught in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees said, we find nothing wrong with this man. He's a good man. He agrees with us. And the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, started arguing with the Pharisees and turned the attention off of Paul, and they started bickering back and forth one with another. And they started getting angry at one another and arguing with one another became so loud that the Roman had to take Paul and say, What did you, what are you doing? And bring him to safety. At the accusation, in court on this day before Felix, are the Jews, the Pharisees, who are making accusation. And he said, I believe in the resurrection. And if they have anything against me, it's probably this one theological debate that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But Felix, when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, makes or comes down, I will make a decision in your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for 
or to visit him. There was already in court that day a problem according to the laws. There was a breach of Roman law. The people who really accused Paul at first were Asian Jews who accused him of profaning the temple, of bringing Trophimus the Ephesian in the temple. And so Paul says, where are those accusers? The Romans held a very dim view of an accuser who didn't show up to court, almost as much as they would just dismiss the case. And so there's a stalemate at this point. Felix is sort of caught in the middle. You can't prove anything wrong. Paul didn't do anything wrong. It was a religious theological squabble. He didn't want to get in the middle of that. But he has ulterior motives. He wants to please the Jews, sort of. He wants to get money as a bribe. We read that down in verse 26. So he keeps Paul for two years in Caesarea. He's in a quandary. Tertullus couldn't prove anything. The Sanhedrin couldn't prove anything. And if you go back a couple chapters, look at chapter 23. Even Lysias, the guy who wrote the letter to Felix at the beginning, notice what he says in chapter 23, verse 26. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So nothing could be done. And Paul was for two years confined to Caesarea. Now at first... He probably thought, God, why? Man, I like to be out on the run. I'm footloose and fancy free. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. I want to go back to Macedonia or back to Jerusalem. But there he was as a Roman citizen. His friends could visit him, but he couldn't leave the city. And so he probably started quite a work there. Probably decided to get together with Philip the evangelist who lived there and his four daughters and Say, let's bring your daughters over here and your family. We'll have a Bible study tonight. Probably included some of the Roman guards who had to watch him. And God still did a work. And God was preparing him to go on to Rome. Now, this is really the heart of the message. I want to get to it. In verse 24 through 27, where we close tonight. The accusers are gone now. He's had his day in court. Tertullus stood up this golden-tongued lawyer, made accusations, couldn't prove it. And now, Paul the Apostle gets one-on-one with Felix, this man of power, this man hired by the Roman government, this secular politician, one-on-one. And we have a case here of the gospel presented clearly, but a man procrastinating with it. Let's just read the text. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who who was Jewish, He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now, for when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. In other words, don't call me, I'll call you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. 
Therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Here's this great apostle, this guy who loved to preach the gospel to anyone and everyone who would listen to him, face to face with Felix, a governor of the Jews, the procurator of all of Judea. He gets to share the gospel with him. Felix was both a lustful man, a promiscuous man, and he was also a very violent man. In fact, it was the Roman historian Tacitus who said he had a real drive for lust and for power. And he was a very violent man, very oppressive. And then it also mentions Drusilla, who was Jewish. What a combination. A Roman governor and a Jewish woman. Drusilla was the granddaughter of Herod Agrippa I. The sister of Herod Agrippa II. It was her grandfather, or great-grandfather, excuse me, who killed the babies in Bethlehem. It was her great-uncle who took John the Baptist and had his head cut off and put on a platter. She was Jewish by virtue of her mother. It is said that she was one of the most beautiful gals in the Roman Empire, just gorgeous. In fact, so much so that she used her beauty to get into social circles. She was married and divorced several times to get up on the ladder. She was first married at 16, and now she's married to this creep. But she did it for her own government, so she could become rich and become heir of estates. She couldn't keep a husband. She just kind of went from husband to husband. And I've told you the story about the woman who couldn't keep a husband. She was married to four husbands. And uh, the first husband, she went into the counselor and said, you know, I've been married four times. He said, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, the first husband was a banker. The second was a movie star. The third was... A preacher, and the fourth was a mortician. He said, well, why did you marry any of them? He said, well, she said, I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. I've told you that one before. Sort of like Drusilla. She just kind of married them all. Now, in verse 24... We see that uh, after some days, when Felix had come with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning his faith in Christ. The crowd is dismissed, and probably out of curiosity, as well as wanting to get money, he sends for Paul and says, Paul, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about what you're into now. Talk to me. And probably out of sheer curiosity... Because they were both familiar with Jesus. Remember, she knew all about Jesus from her great-grandfather and from her great-uncle. He had a more accurate knowledge of the way, it says here previously. So he heard about Jesus and he wants to know about it more. And so Paul shares the gospel with him. You know, there's a lot of people that have been drawn to Christ out of pure curiosity. Even in the scripture as well as out of the scripture. Nicodemus was curious. He came to Jesus at night. He said, uh, you know, we have heard and seen these great miracles and we know that God is with you for no one can do these things unless God is with him. Jesus said, well, Nick, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that led a series of discussion to where eventually we believe Nicodemus was born again. But out of sheer curiosity and hunger, 
he came to Jesus at night. Then there was Zacchaeus who lived in Jericho, who when Jesus was going through town one day, climbed up the sycamore tree because he was a short little guy. He wanted to see Jesus over the crowd, and he was just kind of looking curiously, hanging out in the tree. Jesus stopped and said, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. We're going to eat lunch at your house. Just sort of invited himself, went over to Zacchaeus' house, and ate lunch with him. Out of sure curiosity, many of the people in the crowds that followed Jesus were no doubt just plain curious. Who is this guy, this miracle worker, this speaker of great messages? And they came. And you know, many of you have come to know Jesus out of curiosity. Many of you have come to this church out of curiosity. Think, what kind of a church meets in an old sports center? What kind of a group of people would come in the middle of the week, Thursday night, to listen to the Bible? I'm curious. My friend, I've seen changes in his life. I'm curious. You know, I was curious, and really that was the hook that led me to Christ. I was in San Jose, California, turned on the television. Billy Graham was on. I figured, I'm curious enough. This is not intimidating. I'm all alone in my living room, and I'll watch it. And I was led to Christ. Back in the Jesus movement days, I remember when there were hundreds of kids and hippies and crazy people, of whom I was chief, getting saved every week. And I remember newspapers and Life magazine and Time magazine and Look magazine, all these magazines and film crews from all over L.A. and Southern California would go out there with their cameras and writing down things with their journalists and photographers just to see what's going on. And I'll never forget, there were some Saturday nights as the Bible was being presented and Kids were coming up during an altar call that many of the cameramen filming this for the news and journalists who were just taking notes, left their chairs, put their pencils down, walked out from the behind their cameras and came up for the altar call out of they came there out of pure curiosity. And God used that to rescue them into eternal life. That's a great hook. And some of you are curious. Just don't do what this man does as we go on. He sends for Paul. They talk about these things and notice, okay, after some days, okay, verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Uh, Just picture for a moment. On this throne is this man of power, governor. Standing in front of him is a preacher in rags. The man on the throne has the power to cut off the head of the preacher in rags. He holds the power of life and death given to him by the Roman government. At any moment, he could say, Paul, I'm just tired of you. You're going to get killed. That's it. He was ruthless. He had that reputation. Now place yourself in Paul's shoes. What kind of a message do you preach to a guy like that? Do you water it down? Do you try to just... Tell him to be nice and it's nice to be nice and think positive things. That'd be the temptation to do. You want to get the guy to like you. But it says that he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. That's heavy, man. And at the end of his message, we are told (laughs) that Felix was afraid. You know what the Amplified Bible says? It says he became alarmed and terrified. I got to chuckle at that. Here's this man of great power. Here's this little preacher. And the man on the throne is the one that's shaking. little preacher just very confidently telling the truth. That's what conviction can do. And that's what the Holy Spirit can do when you tell people the truth. They squirm. They get convicted. They become alarmed and terrified. 
If you are married or you live with someone who is unsaved and is under conviction by the Holy Spirit, drop your name in the prayer box so we can pray for you. It's probably one of the toughest places to be in is to live with a person who's fighting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They'll make your life miserable, won't they? They'll lash out at you. They'll think of things. They'll look for inconsistencies because they're trying everything they can to fight what God is doing in their hearts. They don't want to let go. And you're the closest representative of God in their lives and they'll lash out at you. And conviction can do that. This man is convicted. He's alarmed. He's shaking this powerful man on the throne. And Paul's just telling it like it is. Notice, first of all, in that verse, that he reasoned. That's an important word. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3. Look down around verse 15. He says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or apologia is the word. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness, and fear. That's exactly what Paul the Apostle did. He reasoned with him. He just didn't say, let me tell you something. Jesus is the way. You're going to hell. Accept it by faith. He reasoned. Now, Paul was that kind of a guy. To give people a reason for the hope that lies in him. Felix called for him. Asked him about his faith in Christ. All right. I'll tell you. And he went through the mental processes of giving him a good reason for the hope that lies within him. I was raised as a kid to believe in God. I was raised in a religious home. I was not a Christian, but I had a good foundation. God exists. Jesus was born of a virgin. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. I was taught that. I knew what I believed. I had no idea why I believed it. I just knew that I should. And enough fear was pushed into my life that, you know, if I don't, I'm toast. So I believed it. When I was 18 years old, I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I was able to use the foundation that I had from being a child to learn about the gospel, to grow in the faith. And as I grew in the faith, I still knew what I believed. In fact, more than ever, I knew what I believed. I just didn't know why I believed it. And when I was challenged, I didn't have good answers. That's okay. That's all right. I remember going street witnessing at night. We'd pile into a Volkswagen bus. They'd let us off at thrifty mart and we'd comb the parking lot and preach to people and people would ask me questions and i'd say you know jesus loves you and they'd say how do you know god created the heavens and the earth how come you don't believe in the theory of evolution or they'd ask me questions i couldn't answer and i didn't have good answers for them but i went and i found them out so that next time somebody asked me at least i had some semblance of a reasonable answer to give to them instead of hiding behind i don't know go talk to him And I wanted to know why I should believe it. As I went into the secular workplace, which is the place where you should get challenged in your faith, unfortunately today it's Christian schools and seminaries that are challenging more than the secular people are because they don't know what they believe so often. But my classes were zoology and um, physiology and anatomy and all my scientists, my professors believed in evolution and they tried you know i was the only guy in my class who really made a stand and said you know i believe that god created the heavens and the earth and here's why and uh it gave me great opportunities and i was on the spot in almost every class but 
it helped me come to a place where I could reason. And I found something very refreshing about God. You see, I thought that what you do when you become a Christian is you put your brain on the proverbial shelf intellectually. And you just become a pupitata. You just sit and you listen and you don't question and you don't reason. You just, okay, I believe it by faith. And then I was challenged in college by the philosophies of Kant and Kierkegaard saying that you can't bridge the gap between faith and reason. And as I was challenged, God was enabling me to give an answer for the hope that lies in me, as Paul the Apostle said. I found out that God does, God encourages people to think. You know, Paul the Apostle was able to go to Athens and quote on Mars Hill Epimenides and Artaris, the Greek philosophers. He was skilled in them. He used them. And he was able to share what he knew with them in their own language and give them a reason. Now, I'm not saying that every one of you is going to become an apologist. That's really uh, unrealistic. But we should be able to give people good answers and to reason with them. And you know what? If you don't know the answers, there's plenty of good resources, tapes and books and materials out there to help you find out the answers, to tell people the answers. Paul did that. And notice what he reasoned about, first of all, about righteousness, about being right with God. He got right to the heart of it. Talked, no doubt, about sin, about the need of a Savior, and how to get in right standing with God. It made this guy shake. He reasoned about self-control. Now, of all people to share about self-control, he was uh, reaching a real hot potato here. Because Felix had Drusilla lured away from her husband, lived with her for a while, and married her illicitly, unlawfully. And he's talking about self-control, which means to harness your passions as you yield your life to God. And this made the guy squirm. He nailed him. Now, Paul was not soft-pedaling the message. He got right to the heart of it. And he made this guy shake. You know, we have run, if you've listened to radio uh, in the last couple of months, you know that we have run a lot of spots on secular radio around town, probably every major secular station. We did it by design. We're not trying to get people into an institution or an organization or trying to build up uh, our base, but simply to introduce them to the gospel. And so on KOB or on Rock 10, whatever, or we have these God spots. And then we say, call this number and we'll send you a free pamphlet. We've had lots of people call saying, please send me a pamphlet on relationships. My marriage is failing. I want to know what the Bible has to say. It's been so fruitful. Now we have people also that because the message is sometimes hard-hitting, in 30 seconds, it's amazing what can happen. And we have people who call and just get angry. What right do you have to share the gospel on secular radio? I said, well, first of all, we're living in America, and we have the right of free speech, and we paid for it, so we can say anything we want to, just like you can. We get letters from people, and they say, well, you know, you could use that money to feed the poor. Well, you don't know what we're doing to feed the poor, and I wonder what you're doing to feed the poor. And if more people get saved and come on Jesus' side, you'll have more people feeding the poor. But it, 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 you get nailed. But it was beautiful the other day. Somebody called, weeping. They heard this thing on secular radio. And over the phone, our secretary led her to Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? 
It's all worth it. But oftentimes, the gospel has that ability to shake you up. That's good. That's good. Sometimes we come to church and that's what happens. We have comfortable air conditioning. You have comfortable music. You have comfortable places to sit until the message starts. And sometimes you become a little uncomfortable. And sometimes that's the way it ought to be. You know, uh, we are sometimes called to comfort the afflicted and at other times to afflict the comfortable. And believe me, this guy in the scripture was afflicted as Paul preached to him. It reminds me of David. David had sinned against God and Bathsheba by lusting after her, having sexual relations. She becomes pregnant. He sends for Uriah, her husband, tries to get him to lay with her so it covers up his sin. He won't do it. He says, Joab, as you're fighting the Amorites next week, I want you to put Uriah right out in the front of the battle until he gets killed. And he gets killed. A year goes by and David is unrepentant. So the prophet comes to him. He says, David, let me tell you a story. There were two men in the city. One was rich, one was poor. Rich man had a whole herd of flocks. Poor man had only one lamb. In fact, this lamb was like a daughter to him, the pet of the family. And David, you wouldn't believe what happened, but this rich man was throwing a feast for his friend who was coming in from out of town. And instead of taking one of his resources, his vast array of flocks, he takes the only lamb the poor man had, slaughtered it, and had it for dinner. David said... As the Lord lives, this man shall surely die and pay that guy back fourfold. The prophet said, David, you are the man. And he used an analogy to say, David, all that God has given you and you take this man's wife to be your wife, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, and nailed David. And as it nailed his heart, he repented before God. But this guy doesn't do it. All he did is send for him. He shook a little bit. And notice what happens, and we'll close with this. He said, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Meanwhile, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. He trembled, and that's it. That's all. He trembled, but he didn't do anything about it. He squirmed, it touched his heart, but he didn't act on it. You know how dangerous that is to hear spiritual truth and not act on it? Every time you hear spiritual truth and decide not to obey it, you put a callus over your heart. You become hardened. So pretty soon you don't hear that voice as strong. You're not as sensitive to sin any longer. And a heart can become hardened. And an unbeliever who lives in that perpetual state of saying no to the Holy Spirit as he's trying to bring him to Jesus Christ can become reprobate beyond feeling. He just trembled and that's it. Listen, folks, don't be confused every time you see an emotional Release by people as if, oh, look at them. They're weeping, obviously. Well, not necessarily. They might quake and tremble and have an emotional outburst, but not really do anything about it that would cause change. And notice his excuse. He says, go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Folks, atheism has slain its thousands. Procrastination, its tens of thousands. Oh, I know I need Jesus, but when I'm a little older, you know, I'm young right now, I want to have fun. Really. And so you get a little older. Well, I'm busy right now. I've got a family. I'll wait till I'm old. And you get old. I'm too old. You always have an excuse. Procrastination has slain its tens of thousands. Just go away. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. 
There was a story, it's a legend, it's a myth, but it does paint a true picture. That one time the demons had a conference and they were asking questions how they might ruin mankind. And one little demon stood up and said, I know we can convince people that there is no God. And uh, another demon stood up and said, that's a dumb idea. Most people are smarter than that. There's enough evidence around them that would lead them to the conclusion that God exists. And they're going to wonder, why do we have this world? And the, the big questions of life can't be answered apart from God. So another demon stood up and said, I'll tell you what, we'll convince people that Jesus Christ is not a historical figure. Another demon said, well, that's ridiculous. There's too much historical evidence, not only from the scripture, which is valid enough, but from other historians won't work. And they went around the room till finally the wisest demon of all stood up and said, let's convince people that there's God, that there's Jesus Christ, that they need him and that they ought to go to church, but they ought never to change and they can put off the decision till later. And Lucifer stood up and said, that's the smartest idea of all. And that's been their modus operandi ever since. To tell people, you've got time. Well, you know what? The Bible says that the best time is, as soon as you hear it, is right now. Let me tell you about a man real quickly as we close. I knew a man years ago who heard the gospel over and over again. And two weeks before his death, I shared the gospel with him and he rejected Jesus Christ. He was my brother. And I learned how short life is and the best time to receive Christ is now. And if God speaks to your heart, to put it off is sheer absurdity and insanity. Think, well, you know, this is a tough choice. I want to be wise. Hey, you might think you're wise and you might be wise in your own eyes for a moment, but a fool forever. What profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? And so if you've come tonight out of curiosity. And if you feel any inkling of the Spirit of God moving in your life, you surrender to Him tonight. Lest your heart become hardened and callous and you miss the very purpose for which you're on this earth. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for Your Word, that it touches, that it reaches, that it's like a two-edged sword that cuts, that it causes this quaking and this internal conviction as it did in the life and the heart of Felix. Lord, I pray that we might become as Paul, confidently giving people the reasons for the hope that lies in us with meekness and fear.